Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys. Isn't it so good to be with each other and to remind each other that we serve a good and faithful God? I always am encouraged when we sing together in worship and remind each other of why, um, just the why of life, right? Remind each other that God is so good no matter what season we're in. And sometimes we are the ones doing the reminding, telling others God is good and God is faithful. And sometimes we are the ones receiving that encouragement. So wherever you are this morning, I hope that you are encouraged um, by those kinds of reminders that we can um, exhort one another. Um, my name is Carrie. I'm the Women's Ministry Director. This is my husband, Greg. Um, we're just, we want to let you know of some fun things we've got coming up. Starting today, we're doing a family lake day at the Atascadero Lake and fishing. Um, it's going to be a good time, so come out, bring your dinners, and, um, and come join us. What kind of fishing do you think is going to be there, Greg? Yeah, well, <laughs> fishing can go a lot of different ways. Uh, if any of you have kids, uh, you know, it's going to be that hours of tying knots and uh, <laughs> dealing with tangles. Um, or uh, as maybe some of you have uh, seen kids figure out how to fish, we were just up at Hume Lake this past uh, month, and uh, our 10-year-old started to figure out how to tie his own stuff. And then he and his buddy uh, cut up the fish and, and cooked it. It was pretty exciting. So milestones, right? We <laughs> were like, you caught these seven fish? Okay, now you're going to have to gut these seven fish because we don't want to <laughs> do it. And so you're going to have to learn. It was great. Yeah, life goals. So, uh, so yeah, this, uh, this afternoon, 4 o'clock, come out to the lake park. Um, if fishing's your thing, bring a pole. Um, even if it's not, bring a, um, bring a, bring a dinner, um, a kayak, a uh, paddleboard, or just come and hang out on the grass um, or the playground. should be a good time. Um, we have a uh, worship night coming up in two weeks, August 6th. Uh, it's Sunday night. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes just a few songs on Sunday morning just feels like I'm just getting started, just getting warmed up. Uh, so we're going to create some extended space to have time of worship, time of prayer. Um, uh, coming to the end, end of summer, I know it's sad to say that it's not quite there yet, but as we head into fall, um, a lot of kind of life rhythms change for, for many of us and for the life of the church. So it's be a good time to kind of shift into fall mode, dedicate it to the Lord and, and have some, some time of prayer and worship together. So make that, make that happen if you can come. Um, also, speaking of fall, as Carrie said, she's the women's director. She's been uh, doing a lot of work and planning for the fall. Um, and so uh, what, what's coming up in uh, September? Well, there's a lot of things coming up. But one of the things I want to let you ladies know now, uh, so you can mark it off on your calendars and save the date, September 29th, that weekend is our women's retreat up at Hume Lake. So... Um, Mark your calendars. Sometimes, like I know a lot of you are soccer coaches, you're going to have to tell your co-coach, hey, I'm not going to be here that weekend um, because we're going to be at Hume Lake. It's going to be a great time. So I hope that um, you guys can join us. If you want more information, you can go on our website. All the information's there. When you click on the sign up, it'll pull up the form. And on that form is all the information that you need to kind of get in the know for Hume Lake. So hope you join us. It's always a really sweet time to get away, be in the mountains. Um, Hume Lake is a special place, I know, for a lot of us. So um, come without your kids. They actually do a great job of um, feeding us really good food uh, this weekend. So, um, so just look forward to it. And I hope that you'll join me. And that's all we have. How about we pray? Uh, God, we just uh, come to you and, and ask you that you would teach us. Uh, teach us your way. Uh, thank you for the, the time of just um, honoring you and blessing you and uh, consecrating this time uh, during our worship. And I just pray for Jeff this morning. Speak through him. God, uh, empower him and bless him as he shares the word with us this morning. Thanks for your goodness to us and your faithfulness to speak. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Gutting fish this afternoon. Sounds like a good time. I don't think I'm going to be there. No, but it does sound like a good time, really. Hey, if you were here last Sunday, um, we had uh, the good Reverend Dr. Don Davis sharing with us. And if that was maybe your first time, yeah, we clap for that. Um, maybe, you, maybe you were visiting. Um, maybe you're relatively new to our church and um, you're going to be incredibly disappointed this morning. Um, he's not here. I'm sorry. Um, but it was great. And if you did miss last Sunday... Um, Dr. Davis is one of our ministry partners through uh, the Urban Ministry Institute that we work with in prison ministry at ABC. And um, he shared with us last week, and it was such a fantastic reminder to focus on the glory of our creator, Jesus Christ, and to keep him on his throne and to fix our eyes on him and allow for all of the other circumstances to be measured and weighed in light of that. And so um, go online and listen to that. Um, if you weren't here, um, it was a really, really great morning. But this morning, we're talking about forgiveness. We're in Matthew chapter 18. And, uh, you know, when we come up to a topic like forgiveness um, in, as we work through the book of Matthew, um, a lot of times I think we're tempted to to want to have a, a prescription, like a how-to. So we come up to this and say, okay, how do we forgive? Um, how do we approach forgiveness? And I want to just simply warn you that that's not the case this morning. I'm not going to give you a how to forgive. In fact, you're aware as well as I am that that's a, a process. And there are circumstances in your life, um, relationships you have and otherwise, that would require a great deal of time invested in how we approach forgiveness. And so this morning, um, we're looking not at how to forgive, but why to forgive. And that's what Jesus, I think, is after this morning. And so I want to focus for a few minutes on how he asks for us to view forgiveness through this um, brief little story in Scripture. But as I was reading, I was reminded of another story in Luke where uh, this woman, the woman of the city, the way Luke calls her in chapter 7, comes to see Jesus and she begins weeping in his presence and washing his feet with her tears. And, and it's this beautiful scene of, of a woman who, who's been broken by her sin and by the world, um, but finding amazing solace and peace in the presence of Jesus and ultimately healing in the presence of his forgiveness and the Pharisees, um, as they often are, are disgusted by this and they call Jesus out and they say, if you really knew, if you were really a prophet who knew things about people, you would know who this woman really was and what she's really done and you wouldn't allow for her to be touching your feet. And Jesus responds, as he so often does, with a beautiful story and a question. And he tells a story of a banker that lent out and forgave debts. And there was one who'd been forgiven um, 50 and another one that had been forgiven 500. And Jesus simply asks the religious leaders, who do you think loves more? The one who's been forgiven a little or the one who's been forgiven the greater debt? And they say, well, certainly the one who's been forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, you're right. And in Luke chapter seven, verse 47, he says, he who's been forgiven little loves little. See, forgiveness is in the eye of the beholder. Forgiveness has everything to do with perspective. How are you seeing things? Have you been forgiven a little bit or a lot? Or are you acknowledging a lot of forgiveness 
Are you acknowledging only a little forgiveness when in fact you've been forgiven a great deal? It matters how we see things in order for us to be able to consider forgiveness. And I think when we approach this topic, we're often asking the wrong kind of questions. We're asking things like, well, what's been done to you? What are the offenses? How have you been wronged and to what extent? And your perception and your answer of these questions ultimately determines your ability to love and to forgive, right? How, how have you been wronged? Could you, could you overcome that? Could you forgive that? But Jesus here is turning the tables. And he's saying, you're asking the wrong kind of questions. Stop asking how have you been wronged and start asking how have you wronged? What are the things that you've done? What are the offenses you have against others? What are the things that you have debted on? And how have you been forgiven in those areas? It's precisely what Jesus does to Peter in this story. See, Peter asks Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive a brother who sins against me? And almost like with a wink in his eye leading Jesus, he says, should I forgive him seven times? Which is over double the rabbinic tradition. So he's looking for a gold star. You know, he's like, seven times, Jesus? I'm going to go above and beyond. And Jesus goes, no, how about 77 times, Peter? Here's what I see Jesus doing. He's saying, your assumption, Peter, is that you've been sinned against unjustly. And that that injustice is more significant in your mind than the injustice that you've committed. That your injustice, the wrongs that have been done to you, ought to be held in higher regard than the things that you've actually done wrong toward others. Be careful, Peter. That's what I see Jesus doing here. Be careful, church. Not to judge the wrongs of others as more significant than your own. Be careful how you see it. Forgiveness is in the eye of of the beholder. How are you seeing your sin in comparison to the sin of others? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read this story and see what Jesus actually says. And we're going to hold fast to his words this morning. In verse 21 of Matthew 18, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he showed until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered to him the jailers until he should should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And we see a very clear and compelling call of Jesus to forgiveness at the end of this parable. That he says, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. And he gives us some lead up to that and understanding context for us to see our own debts in respect of the debts of others and help us to build a case for our own forgiveness. Jesus is helping us to readjust our perspective and our vision towards others and towards our own sin. And in order to do that, he uses several characters. And I want to walk through the characters in this parable, the story that Jesus uses to build this case and see what we could learn from each of these characters. So the first thing is the king. And we have a king in this story, he says right here in verse 25, that the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. There's a premise of justice in this story. That's kind of the foundational um, beginning point, entry point of forgiveness is justice. And I think our ability to forgive often comes back to our view of justice. And, And there has to be justice in order for there to be order. Look in verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. This king has to be able to call on his debts. He has to be able to lend and then to call on those debts in order for there to be justice in the kingdom. That's the premise for a good orderly kingdom. The way Tim Keller says it is that if you're trying to live a life in accordance with the Bible... The concept and the call to justice are inescapable. Justice is synonymous with the kingdom of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we keep reading of of judges and of kings holding to justice and law and order. There is order in the kingdom of God. The integrity of the kingdom, in this case, the parable, this king, relies on the king's ability to settle debt. The king is just. One of the most notorious fables of kings and kingdoms is the story of Camelot. It is a fable, by the way. It's not historical. Um, We don't believe there actually was a King Arthur. Maybe there was a king named Arthur, but he certainly um, didn't play out this story historically. But um, you may have seen Luke's like, no, he lives. It's a real guy. Don't shatter my dreams. Um, one of, the, one of the best um, storytellings of this, this story of King Arthur and Camelot um, is in a 1960s musical portrayal, which is a very peculiar uh, film if you've watched it. Um, it's, it's got some really uh, unique undertones. But um, the point is, you have this king, Arthur, and his beloved wife, Guinevere, um, who he's deeply in love with. And you have Arthur's Knights of the Round Table, that have established his kingdom, that do good and do justice in the king or in the kingdom. And the sort of the the shining example of the Knights of the Round Table is the Knight Sir Lancelot, the French Knight. 
And Lancelot quickly becomes the king's right-hand man, and he's one of his most trusted allies and friends. And in the film, what happens is the story goes, it's discovered Lancelot has wooed the heart of the queen Guinevere, and the two are caught in an adulterous affair. And Arthur has no choice but to bring the wayward queen to justice. And the punishment for the offense is burning at the stake. And so there's this very dark scene in the film where the queen Guinevere is brought out to the courtyard of the palace, bound and tied, and she's strapped to the stake, surrounded by knights and military armed men with flaming torches. And the camera pans over to King Arthur and he's sitting on his throne with his head dropped and he's leaning towards the empty throne next to him, the throne of his Queen Guinevere. And he's in despair because he doesn't know what to do. Justice calls for him to allow his wife to die by being burned on the stake, but he loves his wife, even though she's betrayed him. And here's where we see the antagonist of the film. It's the king's estranged son, Mordred. And Mordred has been posturing for his father's throne the whole time. He's manipulating. He's trying to overthrow the king. And so with this conniving tone, he comes before the king in this moment of great distress. And he speaks to the king saying, Arthur, let her die and your life is over. Let her live and your life's a fraud. Then Mordred says, kill the queen or kill the law. And with this ton of bricks fall on Arthur's shoulders, you see the tension of justice in this moment. And I imagine our heavenly father in the epic story of the kingdom of heaven, sitting on his throne, looking toward his bride, who's betrayed, who's offended, who's wandered away. And you and I are Guinevere strapped to a stake in the middle of the king's courtyard, bound and tied, facing the justice of the kingdom, which is flaming torches. And at the last minute, our father God raises his hand and says, stop, my son will die on the stake instead. And as we understand the justice of the kingdom and the necessity for that justice to be resolved, we see payment in full in the personhood of Jesus Christ. Justice is intact and the bride is alive. Payment in full. The good king and father has resolved, redeemed, and forgiven. And this is a really important premise both to the story, the narrative story of Scripture, which is what you and I are being invited into, and this small piece of the story here in the fable, the story of the king. Justice has to prevail. The king is just, but the king is merciful. And in verse 27, it says, Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. And forgave him the debt. Now that debt, forgiving the debt, cost the king something. Someone had to pay for that. 
The money doesn't come from nowhere, but the debt is resolved by the king himself, paid for and forgiven. And Jesus begins this targeted little parable by introducing a good king and his good forgiveness of debt and the establishment of justice in the kingdom. But then we have the servant. Take a look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. See, here's the thing about justice. The king cares about justice and resolved it through his own forgiveness. The servant cares deeply about justice, doesn't he? It says that he resolved in his mind. When he went out, he planned to go collect on his debt. Justice for the servant. Now remember, this servant owed the king what Jesus describes as 10,000 talents, which a talent is about 75 pounds, and it was used to weigh precious metals. So if you do the math, 75 talents, or 10,000 talents times 75 pounds is 750,000 pounds of precious metal, which in today's economy is anywhere from like two and a half million to $200 billion. The point is that this was an unresolvable debt. This man could work a lifetime and never pay this debt. And when he went out, he goes to collect on a hundred denarii. And a denarii is a day's wage. So a hundred days wages. Or again, in our economy, maybe about $10,000. The point is, it's minuscule in comparison. Really, you're going to go collect on a hundred days wages when you've just been forgiven hundreds of millions of dollars. The point is clear. But look at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. Interesting, verse 29 is the exact same language as 26. Have patience with me and I will pay you. But the man refused, put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He had him thrown in prison. He called on his very small little debt. I think there's a memory problem here. Just guessing. We have a short-term memory issue. This is what uh, God says of memory in Amos chapter 5. He says, For I know how many are your transgressions. I, I have a memory. I remember. And how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice. Establishing justice is part of God's plan, but God remembers the debt. And in this story of the servant, we have a short-term memory issue. Therefore, we have a forgiveness issue. And I fear that selective memory has played such a significant role in our own ability to forgive. There's a deep catalog in our minds of the wrongs done, of the debts that are owed. And for this man, I, I think he had a pretty clear list 
The parable's clear. Verse 28, when the servant went out is what Jesus says. He determined to go collect his debts. See, I think people have these lists in their minds. I think we have these lists. Certainly the servant did. He, he knew that this guy owed him 100 denarii and this lady over here probably owed him you know, 50 denarii. And first I'm gonna go collect this one and then I'm gonna go over to this place and I'm gonna go make good on all the debts that I have out. I'm gonna go call in all my debts. His list was so clear. I invite you to pay attention to your catalog, to your ledger. Here's where I think the disparity is for us. Have you ever done one of those exercises, like maybe at Good Friday service or a worship night where you take a post-it note and you write your sin on the post-it note and you, you, know, you put it on the cross? Have you done something like that or seen something like that? Yeah, we've done these little exercises where we take a little slip of paper and we scratch down, you know, our chicken scratches of the sin that we want to leave and release before Jesus and to be forgiven. The problem is, I think we all have those post-it notes on our own sin. We can recall post-it note sizes of our sin and yet we're keeping an Excel spreadsheet about every single other person that's ever done anything wrong to us, tabbed and categorized and with form formulas to add up the totals. Am I wrong? I think we keep a clear inventory. Well, this person, they said this that one time like 15 years ago. And then, well, they still owed me from the time they never paid me back. Well, and she said this and she didn't mean it. Go on down the list. I don't know what the things are in your list, but we have a clear inventory. And yet for some reason, we struggle to come up with a post-it note. Gosh, I don't know. Well, it's probably been three or four days since I sinned. Right? Like, a deep catalog of others' debts is likely to lead to resentment. And I think we begin to say things like, they may never pay me back. They may never appreciate what I've done. For they may, she might never, never understand the sacrifice that I've made. And it grows this Resentment. See, this servant was clinging tightly, so tightly. This is how I imagine him, to, to see his hands grabbing on to the debts, the lists, the things that were owed to him, the wrongs done to him. He's grabbing on, clenching his fist, going, I need to be paid back for this stuff. I have to have justice. I care deeply about the right thing being done. So he's clenching so tight. The problem is when you're holding on, to the debts of others, when your list is so deep and your catalog of griefs against you is so strong, it's impossible for you with open hands to receive the forgiveness of a gracious and loving father. And until he were to let go of those debts and open his hands, release the resentment of everything that was done wrong to you that you couldn't let go of, then he would never have the open palms to receive the true forgiveness of the benevolent king that just wanted to shower him with 10,000 talents worth of forgiveness. But he couldn't grab it. He couldn't grasp it. He had no concept in his mind for what that degree of forgiveness would look like. So we have this gracious king a bitter servant, and then a lawful jailer. Verse, 20, uh, verse 32, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your own fellow servants as I've had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. There is a clear picture here of earthly justice. There's a jailer in the parable. And there's a reason that Jesus includes a jailer because he says there's consequence for your lack of forgiveness. Your inability to forgive makes you subject to the world's justice system. And in Matthew chapter five, Jesus warns us of this several chapters earlier. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. See, Jesus is saying there is a justice system of the world. And if you would like to be subject to the justice of the world, then go ahead and nitpick over every wrong done against you. But I urge you, Jesus says, settle it on the way to court so that you're not subject to an earthly justice system as it relates to forgiveness. Now, I know there's complexity to that. I'm oversimplifying it, but for the sake of argument, if you want to play by the world's rules of justice, you often and likely will not win. I, you have to just take my word for it. Uh, Spent a lot of time with people who are hungry to be made whole, whether relationally, financially, um, as far as employment goes or otherwise. Sat across the table from people that say the only way for me to be made whole is to submit to the world's system of justice in court. And the problem is in our society, if you go to court, it'll cost you far more than you are willing to pay. It'll keep you far longer than you were willing to stay. And it will likely provide more hurt than it will healing. Jesus is saying, try to deal with this with a, with a posture of grace and forgiveness because submitting to a system that's at best incomplete, at best run by hands that are wicked in our own depravity, trying to make some sense of what justice really means, there's rarely a winner. Now, I'm not saying that you should become a doormat and that you should let people walk all over you or that there's not a place for holding people accountable. My goodness, especially within the church, holding others accountable to the things that they've committed to and said that they would do is appropriate and biblical. And there is a model for that. And I'm also making some generalizations and based on your situation, you may understand that there's nuance to every one of these unique circumstances and it's not as simple as hey settle things on the way to court just deal with it you know remember you've got debts and they've got debts and let's just have a mindset of forgiveness I know that's an oversimplification and that there is a place for the administration of justice in our society it's more complicated than simply remembering forgiveness and sometimes justice is worth fighting for in our world's environment. But I want you to consider whether you're placing your hands, placing yourself in the hands of an earthly administer of justice or keeping yourself in the hands of a gracious and benevolent father who's capable of providing, restoring, and maintaining his own justice in his kingdom. 
consider the debt which has been forgiven you before you decidedly hold them accountable to their debt. Forgiveness is in the eye of the beholder. How do you see your debts and the debts of others in comparison? I think we would do well in these moments this morning to take inventory. To maybe build out our our list a bit more and realize it's probably more than a sticky note. To allow for God in our minds to see our lives as rebellious and hurtful and harmful as they really are apart from the righteousness of Christ. And to realize that we were in fact tied and bound like the Queen Guinevere to the stake. And that what actually happened in the narratives of scripture is that Jesus Christ walked down to that court and untied those leather bindings. And he stood in between you and I and the flaming torches that surrounded us. And he said, you step down from the pedestal and you go free. And I'm going to willingly be tied and bound on the stake and be crucified and killed as a penalty for what you've done wrong. You need to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and recognize there is a weight to our offense and our sin that ought not be too quickly forgotten. I'm not saying you should dwell and live in in the shame, but remember the cost, especially as it relates to forgiving others. Because here's the call at the end of the, uh, the verse, the passage. Jesus is clear. So also my heavenly fathers, is verse 35, So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's no grammatical puzzle to solve here. We don't need to consult the Greek. Jesus is clear. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Don't forgive and you won't be forgiven. It's a painful reality, but it's true. Remember the cost of Christ. Remember the weight of your own sin and ask, can I honestly withhold forgiveness from another when I've been forgiven so great a debt? Forgiveness is in the eye of the beholder. Let me pray. Father, you know every bit of our offense of our betrayal of our denial of our idol worship our unholy thought process our distraction of our deceit of our envy you've seen it all and you have clearly said I'm going to pay for it. So Lord, if nothing else this morning, may we sit under that truth and reality that we have been forgiven so great a debt. And we thank you, God. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ.
Thank you for the freedom. Thank you that it's oceans upon oceans that bury our sin, not not rivers or streams. Thank you that you cast our wrongs, our offenses as far as the east is from the west. And that by our redemption, you have not only forgiven, but you've counted us as righteous. God, may we remember those moments. May we remember those wrongs. May we remember the weight and the glory and the goodness of your forgiveness when we approach others who are indebted to us. Teach us to forgive. Lead us to forgive. In your name I pray. Amen.
things change on the authority of God and his word and his word has spoken and we do take it serious. And his word is saying, you need to forgive lest you will not be forgiven. And I recognize this morning, we've talked a lot about why. Why should you forgive? And very little about how. And I wanna just invite you as we take God's word seriously and we wanna put it into practice, I wanna invite you to explore that further. If you're processing, wrestling, struggling, going, man, yeah, I get it, but I don't know how, I don't even know where to start. We have some tools at ABC to help you with that. One of them is a, a um, class we call Life's Healing Choices and it runs kind of recurrently. Um, you can jump into that class and start to look at some tools. How do I process through pain and hurt and begin to forgive? And that's a great segue into Celebrate Recovery, um, which happens here. Our, we have a worship service here on Thursday nights, every single Thursday night in this room um, with some group discussion following that and then 12-step groups that follow that. that. Those are all great tools to be able to process through what forgiveness actually looks like and how to play that out. And so please, if you, if you need information on any of these resources, um, talk to me or check in at our Connect booth. Um, if you need a process right now, right here, um, God's just working in your heart and you're struggling through that, what it means to forgive. Um, we have a prayer team up here on my left and we'd be happy to pray and process with you this morning. Um, otherwise, have a great Sunday. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you back here next weekend.